Matthew, Matthew 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened. Uh, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. And we'll leave our reading there today. <coughs> a few, uh, a number of centuries ago, when the church was still in formation, some people decided to calculate the day on which Jesus died. And so some of them arrived at this day, Friday. And that's why we have the tradition Good Friday. Um, for what it's worth, my own investigation into it, such as it was, led me to a day of a Thursday. Meaning a Thursday night, all day Friday, and all day Saturday uh, in the grave. But 
What do I know? And, and does it matter? Does it matter whether it's Thursday or Friday? Today's the day that we're going to focus on this most important thing. This passage is it's really familiar and there is obviously a great deal of material in there to keep you uh, meditating for years. And obviously we can't do that in one go. So today I've picked three elements out of that passage. This is uh, page 1005, uh, if you want to follow. So, I picked these three elements, and the first one is that I want us to determine this, that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the King above all monarchs, and all Prime Ministers, and all Presidents. And here we see him humbled. That's the first thing. The second point, I want to make this point that saving himself from the cross was never an option. He was taunted in that way, but saving himself was not an option ever. And the third thing I want to try to figure out is how and why his own father deserted him when he was needed most. So let's establish first then that Jesus was a true king. He was a true king. We use a title for Jesus in the Bible, King of Kings. So you might think, well that obviously means he's the, he's, he's the, he's the king of all of the kings. That's what it sounds like. The title is just the title of honour. It's used for other people as well in the scriptures. So uh, just like majesty, we say about our queen, you know, her majesty. But we know quite well when we use King of Kings for Jesus, or we call him the Majesty, we understand that we, we mean that now we're talking about the King that is above everything. He has no one above him in authority or power. That's what we mean by majestic King of Kings. It says here in Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, we have that contrast, don't we? Here's a king on a donkey. It says there, King of Zion and King of Jerusalem. Well, Jesus came to institute a brand new order, a, a new Zion, a new Jerusalem. And that is, in fact, where we live, the kingdom of God. That's where we exist now and we will forever exist in this city of New Jerusalem. And uh, obviously, the way Jesus, the way the Messiah was prophesied to come was unusual, you know. It's very inappropriate for a king to march into a city on a donkey. Where was the big white horse? That's the question. So he was a king, but not quite as we know it. There's another reference in Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2. 
first couple of verses. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, uh, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. We call these the, 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 the Magi, and, uh, which is connected to the word magician. And, and yes, they would have studied uh, sensible subjects and not so sensible. They would have studied mathematics and philosophy, these guys, uh, but also um, astrology, you know. And what's that other one where they turn metals into gold? Alchemy. Alchemy. No doubt they were into alchemy, thank you, yeah. And we can't really say where they stood in relation to, to God. How did they stand? We, we don't know. But God chose a gang of uh, pagans from the East to be subject to a revelation of God, a revelation that there was a king coming. No doubt they had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. They used that term, king of the Jews. And so we see that they were, they were told there was a king coming. So that prophecy of Zechariah, it was... It seems to be about whoever this person is, this, this, this child. So what we're seeing here is, is Christ's royal status being veiled, being hidden. We think about that horrible scene when they put a fake royal robe on him and the Romans, they gave him a fake scepter and a fake crown and they bowed down to him. It was a mockery. Of what, of what what a king should be about. And we said the other week that with the eyes of faith we can see, we can see him as a king. They couldn't. But we see him for what he is. A real king. We see behind the external appearance. When he comes into Jerusalem. On a donkey. He comes into Jerusalem. And we often think that there was thousands of people thronging and saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, hallelujah. I'm convinced that most of those people were not even talking about Jesus. Some of them were. Most of them were just in a state of excitement because they were making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And it was quite common to, 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 to sing and to shout and to say these things. So even there, there was very little recognition of who he was. Veiled again. And we saw even Jesus, he, he hid himself, didn't he? He hid his kingly nature quite a lot. I think it's because, based on what Jesus said, if he'd have, if he'd have marched into Jerusalem on, on that white horse and declared he was the king, there'd be a big uprising and maybe a few riots here and there. And the Romans would clamp down and kill everyone, and that would be the end of the story. No New Testament effectively. So it was a little bit low key. I want to turn to John 18. John chapter 18. And read this. Uh, John 18 and verse 36. He said, Jesus answered. Now he's being interrogated by Pilate. And he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. You see, so 
He's simply saying that if I was a king like you, like your lot, uh, all my soldiers would come in and kick off and fight and they'd rescue me and I wouldn't have been handed over. But what it tells us anyway is that Jesus is saying that there is a kingdom. He says, my kingdom. Now that tells us two things. There's a kingdom and it tells us that he is the king of it. That's what it tells us. His kingdom. Any kingdom has, uh, it has a subject, the people, and it has, has the king at the top. And we might say that Jesus as the king over the whole world, as he is, he, he certainly rules over other, other people. He rules over the whole world in one sense, doesn't he? But to the, the people of this world, he is those who just want to remain in their sin their whole lives. God will be nothing to them except some holy tyrant who they will face in judgment. Their whole lives he will record their sins and build up a case against them to use at the judgment day. And it is a terrible thing to be part of that body of people. But Jesus also rules over another, a special kingdom. His king, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is one that we've, as Christians, we've been brought into. We've been allowed in, we've been ushered in to this new kingdom. Most people don't. Most people are on the broad road which leads to destruction. And the Bible says just a few find that narrow path which leads to eternal life. And it's through that narrow path we get into God's kingdom. And we, who are God's elect, the ones he chose before the universe existed, those people are in his kingdom now, and we're in it forever. And our environment will change. One day, we're all going to die, folks, and one day there's going to be a great uh, awakening, a great resurrection, and we will continue to live in the kingdom, under the same king, with the same subjects set a much, much better world and one that will never, ever end. Verse, uh, verse 37 even says that there was a, 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 a sign nailed over, nailed over his head which declared him to be a king. And God has overruled here to have that sign placed above his head. So Again, we're left with this picture where we just have a hint of his royal status. Here's a man who's a complete victim, he's on a cross, and yet it says there he's a king. And so again we see how that for a while was, was veiled, was hidden. So through, through, through prophets, through um, what um, Jesus uh, said himself, through the testimony of pagans, we, we accept that this was a king, and I know you know Jesus was the king, but it, it, it deserves a mention because today we're talking about the king of the whole world being captured and strung up on a tree. Kind of doesn't make sense. So we've established he was a true king, and I want to look at this second point, which is that Jesus refused to save himself. Verse 40. Uh, Verse 42 in our passage there. They, they taunted him, remember. 
He saved others. He cannot save himself. What they mean is, they mean, look, he's, 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 he saved other people, but now, look, he's a victim now. God hasn't helped him, and his followers have all abandoned him. What did they mean? What did those people mean he saved others? Well, they mean he saved others from their troubles. Remember, Jesus went around, he cured uh, lifelong illnesses like, I don't know, maybe multiple sclerosis. He healed instantly disabilities like blindness. And he also, he also was able to drive out demons from the souls of men and women. So in that sense, he saved people out of their trouble. But he seems to be unable to get himself out of trouble. He seems to be stuck there. And verse 40, the taunting, the taunting also includes this. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. They had a faulty understanding. They thought Jesus meant that he would physically, by himself, start placing bricks on top of one another and he could rebuild the temple in three days. It's not what he was talking about at all. But from their perspective, it made sense. You said you could rebuild the temple. Well, you can get yourself out of this difficulty and you haven't, so you're not the Messiah. It's easy, you're not the Messiah. Well, the fact is, friends, that Jesus Christ secured the salvation of people through his death. So when we listen to their ta taunts, we hear something else. He saved others. Yes, he did. The Jews are right. In doing this, he has, he has um, secured the salvation of people. That's what he's done. So the Jews were right all along. He did save others not himself. And this is why we say, from a spiritual point of view, to save others, uh, he was not able to save himself. And maybe, let me be even more direct. To save others, he refused to save himself. That's what was happening here. He refused to save himself. Was he tempted? You know as well as I did, he was tempted in, the, in Gethsemane when he was praying. He was tempted to, he was tempted to abandon the whole thing, just scrap the whole thing when he was praying to his father. But then, of course, his will began then to align with his father's, and then he said, "Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done." His will, his will and the Father's will became one. And so it's very fair to say that on the cross he was tempted too. Tempted, tempted by Satan perhaps. Tempted by his own natural uh, weakness to give up on this thing. But we know that he didn't. I want, I want you to just consider a moment. Consider the alternative. Consider 
Consider Jesus giving in to these uh, temptations, both in the garden and on the cross. Consider what would happen. Imagine Jesus. Imagine that the, the, the nails being pulled out miraculously and dropping to the floor. Imagine the ropes that bound into the tree falling down. Imagine he created royal robes for himself and came down from the cross, summoned his angels to round everyone up, have an on-the-spot judgment, and have them all executed. Would that be fair? Of course it would be fair. They were criminals. They were crucifying the Prince of Glory. Of course it would be fair to destroy them. But can you imagine a world had he done that? Imagine, let's say there was a scrap of satisfaction in Jesus had he done that. Let's, let's think, let's imagine there would be some satisfaction in carrying out that justice. But what a cost, what a cost. He would be overwhelmed by the knowledge that through his act of preserving himself, he has secured the doom of the entire human race. Overwhelmed with him. There would be no Bibles. We would not be sitting here today. <coughs> In all likelihood, we wouldn't even know each other. We would be spending our lives doing the same as the rest of this world, which is trying to fill in the days until death comes. Filling in the time with careers, family, holidays, and all sorts of other things. Just wasting time, and then the judgment comes. Can you imagine if we were like that, like those people? Imagine we got to the judgment and we had no advocate. Jesus didn't die on the cross in this scenario. We have no advocate. We stand there while this long, long list of sins is read out that we've committed. And we have no advocate, no lawyer, no one to stand up and defend us. All we have is an absolute certainty that we will be handcuffed and dragged off by God's holy angels and placed in that outer darkness where we would never escape. I tell you folks, I mean, I, 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 I genuinely feel sorry for Jesus Christ when I think of him there. I mean, he's, he's almost the same age as my, my, my eldest boy. Just, a, just a, a young man, just a lad, really. 33 years old. But I'll tell you something, I'm glad, I am so, so glad that he chose to be obedient rather than choosing a, a selfish uh, escape to protect himself. I am glad, I am glad he put me first. That's what I'm saying. I'm glad he put me first. I'm glad he stayed on the cross. There was no other way. Here's my final point. It's about this abandonment. He was abandoned. There was this three-hour period. It tells us this was about... Well, it wasn't about. It was 12 o'clock. It was midday. Something started at midday. Something started. And it went on until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Here's what happened. Jesus 
was treated by God as if he was the epitome of sin. He treated his own son as if he was complete sinfulness. A more sinful creature than anything that has ever existed. Why? Because Jesus had agreed to take on the sins of other people. And to save all them, he is masked with sin. And the father looks down and treats him in that way. Verse 45 says, there was a darkness. So we have this uh, darkness over the land, probably, probably thick, thick. It wasn't an eclipse. It was probably thick, thick clouds over the whole land. A darkness. And then at 3 p.m. exactly, Jesus shouts up to the heavens, My God, my God, he's searching for his Father. He's searching the heavens for the only one who can help him. And his Father is not there. His Father has abandoned him. At this point, Jesus Christ, friends, is truly alone. No doubt the angels were ordered to stand back, stay away. You're not ministering to him. You're not looking after him while he's on the cross. He had to take it all. He had to take every last drop of the anger of God. So it would be wrong to think that Jesus, well, he's the son of God. He marched to Calvary with strength and confidence, saying, yes, let's, let's get on with this now. Let's get it over with. That was not the picture, friends. Not the pic picture one of your friends or brothers Going and going through what he went through. Imagine the agony, the, 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 the anguish. That's what it was like. Three hours there. Three hours that was just, uh, he was consumed by darkness and anguish. We might say that he felt like he was dying continually, but never actually reaching death my God my God he says why why have you abandoned me why have you left me alone well friends God's this is all to do with God's holiness God's holiness is, is moral perfection if you like to us it's a beautiful thing God's holiness is wonderful we, we, we love it we love it because he says I will make you holy in the same way that I am holy but God's holiness is also terrifying if you're one of his enemies it's just this one characteristic is holiness but it prevents God from having anything to do with sin anything at all he can't commit sin himself he can't condone sin in other people. He can't ignore sin and turn a blind eye to it. And what's more, he cannot have sin anywhere near him. And this, friends, answers the riddle of why 
God abandoned his own son. God abandoned Jesus because he cannot tolerate sinfulness. He cannot be in his presence and he cannot fellowship with anyone who is guilty of sin. And Jesus came and he made himself guilty that day. He made himself, he was counted guilty. God doesn't merely avoid sin, steer clear of it. He has to respond to it. He has a duty to respond to sin. And it angers him. And so when he looked down at that figure on the cross, bearing the sins of his people, then this anger, quite naturally and rightly, came out, came down onto that hill of Calvary. And this anger just flooded the soul of Jesus Christ. So that darkness over the land, it was real. But it was also symbolic, friends. Because the darkness over the land mirrored the darkness within the soul of Jesus during those intense three hours he felt wrath, he felt trouble, he felt distress, he felt desolation, darkness and utter gloominess. And remember, he's exchanged the peace and the comfort and the beauty of his heavenly domain for this, for this wholesale misery of soul. That's what he exchanged it for. Why? Believe, are you a believer today? Then he did all that, friend, for you. He did all that for you. Here he is. Darkness in the sky, darkness in his soul. Dumped by all his friends, abandoned by his whole heavenly family. Utterly alone. And that's exactly how it had to be. He had to suffer. And he had to suffer all of it. Why have you left me on my own? The poor man says. To this end, friends, so that God would save people and bless them eternally. Well, can anyone tell me how we thank God for that? Where do we start? Do we have enough words? Do we have enough time to show God the gratitude for what He's done? It's just impossible. It's impossible. Let me finish with this. All these prophecies in the Old Testament in your Bible there are all pointing towards Calvary and it was a day of great darkness. But friends, it was also a day of victory and glory. And we have this king, we've seen this king, we've seen him humble himself. We've seen him determined to go through with all this. And he felt the consequences of sin on that cross. And we should have been there, not him. We should have been on that cross, not him. We should have been there and we should have stayed there forever. In a little bit, we're going we're gonna to come to this table and have this. You could say... The glory of this feast is veiled. 
in the same way. It is hidden. It is, there's not much there. There's not much of a, a selection. And yet it is the most glorious meal we will ever take part in. And we will remember. We will remember Jesus. We'll remember what he did. We have a great saviour, don't we? <laughs> a great saviour. All our salvation is down to him. All of it, every aspect of it. We are expected to do things, certainly, but our acceptance is all in Jesus. There's a quote from this uh, pastor, theologian, uh, writer, B.B. Warfield, who says, We have but one Saviour, and that one Saviour is Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing that we are and nothing that we can do enters in the slightest measure into the grounds of our acceptance with God. Jesus did it all. And by doing it all, he has become in the fullest and widest and deepest sense that the word can bear our Saviour.